Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Andy Young. It's July 14th, uh, 2022. We're here at St. Reginald Parish and the Marini in McMinnville uh, in the Barrel Room. Uh, Andy, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, first question is why wine? Um, I think it was just um, the path that I ended up on in many ways. Uh, I had been a musician all of my life. Um, since childhood and had taken that path all the way through playing professionally through my 20s. Um, I went to college for it. I signed a record deal my senior year um, with some guys from my town and uh, we were with a British label and so we all moved to London for about five years. and I came back to Texas after that experience and um, ended up moving to Austin for a couple of years and deciding in the end that I wanted to um, take a hiatus from music and um, maybe write about music. Uh, my degree is actually in English composition. Um, So I decided that maybe I wanted to do that, but that I needed to sort of have a change of scenery and try to not write about everybody that I knew already. Um, And um, with that, I sort of packed my bags and just drove up here. Um, That was 2007, fall of 2007. I was sort of sight unseen. I mean, I had played shows here, but it had been a very long time ago. Um, I'd played in Portland in 99, 2001, 2002, you know, in those like early years. And Portland was obviously a very different place back then. Uh, at least it was in my mind. And, um, you know, 2007 Portland to even 2012 Portland is very different and certainly different now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I stayed for a couple of years uh, in that time frame of 2007 to 2009 and um, got a job at a small wine bar, a small plate restaurant. It was called Terroir. Um, it was up on MLK in Fremont. And this was back in the day when you could kind of talk your way into a half-decent restaurant job in Portland. Um, You didn't have to have an extreme fine dining resume to do it. You know, I just sort of talked my way into it, to be honest. And they had a really good wine list. Uh, It was all Pacific Northwest wines, uh, Oregon and Washington. Uh, The list was curated by Cole Danhauer. and a lot of people coming in, you know, that were small producers delivering their own wines. And I didn't quite understand at the time why that was. You know, I didn't understand the ins and outs of 
the distribution system here, but um, I knew that it felt really close-knit. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, it was obvious that this was different than anything that I had seen before, um, you know, in terms of working at a college bar or something like that, you know, where the truck guy from Southern just wheels in the plonk and, you know, here you go. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the producers, you know, that started to inspire me originally were found at that bar. Um, and it was, it started as just like, oh, wow, this is really cool. Um, I loved the idea that what I was tasting and the environment that I was in, which was brand new, um, was um, somehow related, you know, and um, I was trying to also understand like the actual concept of terroir, not just that I was working at a restaurant called that, but what that actually meant. And, and in certain wines, you know, you might taste something and even that afternoon smell something outside and be like, oh, those two things are related. You know, I'm starting to find that living in a place and where these things are from, um, there's something deeper here than you would find if you had bought that anywhere else mm -hmm. but here. You know, the ability to be able to taste it here and also live in the place um, was striking to me. Um, it was a revelation in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, and after uh, the closure of the restaurant, um, I continued writing, but eventually ended up in advertising. It, the restaurant was not long for this world. It was, you know, very long time ago. Um, it had its own path. <laughs> um, but um, but it was a it was seminal that experience you know was seminal for me I think in um, finding my way into the industry. Mm -hmm. um, I had started coming down um, to the area down here um, just to taste you know anytime I could just kind of peeking into people's tasting rooms, um, trying to wrap my head around it. Eventually I ended up in advertising, um, as I think a lot of writers do, um, and took a job back in Texas and Dallas um, and worked there for a couple of years, um, right in the middle of the recession. and. Um, it was definitely a, a good place to, to land and be. I think during that time period, it gave me a little bit of stability and a chance to sort of think about what I really wanted instead of sort of acting out of um, desperation. Um, during that time, uh, a friend of mine that was in the music industry in Dallas many years previous had opened up a wine bar or a wine shop. Mm -hmm. Um, and they had these really extensive tastings every Friday night. Um, looking back on it, um, I could see how different it was because essentially what it was was they were doing trade tastings, but for the public, mm -hmm. where they would have the actual distributors come in and they would set up tables. Um, 
and some nights it would be 30 or 40 wines, you know, and it would be free or like $10, you know, something so minimal. If there was a very particular tasting of things like Gaia or something like that, maybe it was 30, mm -hmm. you know, but like a very minimal amount of money uh, to taste some very fine wines. Um, and that experience developed my palate uh, originally, I think, you know, I was there every Friday night. Like it was the only thing that I was interested in um, at that point. Um, and because of that and because of all that tasting, um, I was also still tasting a lot of Oregon stuff uh, there, other places, wherever I could find it. Um, but you know, in Dallas and um, aside from Paul's shop, which the name escapes me, I wish I could remember it. Um, aside from his shop, there, there wasn't, I was just sort of drinking whatever I could find. There wasn't um, like a focus on, oh, I'm only gonna drink small producers or I'm only gonna drink this style. I mean, you know, I was still drinking a lot of like grocery store wine and um, wines from Oregon that were, you know, in Albertsons, things like that. Mm -hmm and letting that sort of be my guidepost. Um, but also drinking these things at Paul's that were sometimes, you know, super high level, um, fairly profound wines. Um, and at some point I thought, you know, I think I want to try to work a harvest. Um, I don't know if that's just like a sense of uh, maybe it's got something to do with being sort of a, a maker personality or something, you know, like mm -hmm. music maybe has something to do with that. Um, our advertising, you know, being a, in the creative department at an advertising agency and just wanting to get under the hood of a thing and kind of look at it from a different angle and really understand how, how it got into the world. Mm -hmm. um, I did not have designs on owning a winery at all or having a brand. I mean, I think I've thought about it sometimes in, in the context of like an advertising portfolio. You know, what does, what does a successful brand need? Like what are the core components? What are the things that have uh, made the brands that are on a national scale succeed? What are the things that are working about these smaller ones that I'm tasting at this wine shop on the weekends? Um, and then I came up in 2011 and just for, I mean, a minor, minor amount of time, um, because the harvest was so late, you know, it's not dissimilar to this year actually, um, where I had left in like early September, you know, for like a three week, uh, window. You know, and I got to like clean some, some fittings uh, at Benton Lane and, um, and came back before any fruit came in the door. <laughs> um, and then um, the following year though, um, oh, let me backtrack really quickly. The thing that led me to that point was that I had enrolled in a course uh, at a college, a little community college in Texas, had an online course for viticulture. Um, 
the, the fella that married American rootstock onto French vinifera is from Sherman Denison, Texas, P.D. Munson. And so there was a, a vineyard and a little community college dedicated to this guy and um, because he was the guy that had saved the French from phylloxera. That's amazing. Um, and he was from Texas and there was, you know, this like scrappy little vineyard, <laughs> you know, of hybrids out in front of the school, but they were teaching the principles of it online and you would show up for like a day, you know, like an intro course and then the rest of it would be online. Um, uh, through that experience, I found out that there was a vineyard in Texas, West Texas, that was um, giving out fruit to students of the class. So I went out there and picked one day um, just a few hundred pounds of stuff. It was, you know, a little Tempranillo, a little Merlot, a little Cab Franc, whatever they would kind of let me have. Um, and made a little carboy of wine with my friend from that shop, actually. We did it together. Um, and, but it was mostly that experience of being out there and picking that I thought, oh, I really like this. I, you know, this sort of hits me in a core place. Um, and I think I want to go work a harvest. And that was kind of the, the last straw, I suppose, you know, in terms of deciding that I really wanted to investigate what it was like on the interior of the industry. Um, I came up uh, for 2011, came right back. Came back in 2012. Uh, originally, I was going to uh, work with Pam Walden from Willful. Um, and uh, I couldn't drive a forklift. And at the time, she couldn't either. So, um, or at least that's my memory of it. And so she was like, well, I have a friend that in, in the Custom Crutch facility where I'm working uh, that needs help. And that was Chris Berg, because she's at um, Laurel Ridge at this point, mm -hmm. making Jezebel and Daedalus, maybe, was what it was called back then. So that's kind of my family tree, I suppose, where it starts, right, is Chris gave me my first job. Mm -hmm. And I worked for Chris in 2012. And then in 2013, I had gotten another job in advertising, but up here, um, and made 50 cases uh, on my own with Chris because I couldn't work the whole harvest. But I was like, if I buy a ton from you, can you give me a thousand pounds from this vineyard and a thousand pounds from this vineyard and I'll, I'll co-ferment them and we can kind of work on this wine together and that way I'll be able to stay mm -hmm. in the, you know, in the flow of things, but I won't be able to, you know, do the full harvest. Mm -hmm. So we made this wine together uh, and that was the first St. Reginald Parish wine. Um, and then that... Um, that little marketing job, they ended up scrapping the department and hiring myself and one art director back as freelancers. And so I started a career as freelance copywriter um, and slowly built uh, 
work around that. But what it did was it gave me the opportunity to kind of focus in on being at the winery. Um, and the following year, I worked the whole harvest again with Chris in 2014, and we had moved over to Medici, um, over to Hal Medici's place. Um, and it was, a, it was a good environment. I mean, it was scrappy, you know. And it got scrappier after Chris left because at first it was Chris, myself, Joe Swick. Mm-hmm. Um, we were making the wines for Lonnie Wright, the pines. That came with us from Laurel Ridge. Um, at Laurel Ridge, we also made Mahonia and Susan's wines, the Laurel Ridge wines. and. There was, you know, there was a lot going on in terms of custom crush, mm-hmm. um, but I think what it did was uh, working with all of those varietals with Chris. It really kind of drove home to me that I loved Pinot Noir mm-hmm. um, and loved Burgundian varietals specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, so I made eight barrels in 2014, um, and then in. 2015, um, I think Chris was still there. He was. In 2015, Chris was still there, but what happened was I had met through an introduction of Chris, um, Tim um, Zook, who owns Sisu Vineyard, which is down below Chris's vineyard. On, um, I don't hardly ever spend any time in Yamhill Carlton anymore, but that road where Willa Kinsey is, I forget the name of it off the top of my head. Um, but there's, you know, that one road and Willa Kinsey and Fairsing and uh, Beacon Hill. And Sisu sits right below Fairsing. It's on the same hill, literally, you know, the bottom of uh, Fairsing is Sisu. And it was uh, previously owned by Bill Holleran. And Tim and uh, his wife had bought it, uh, sold their house in Portland, moved to Newburgh, um, you know, sort of doing the, we want our kids to experience this kind of trajectory. Mm-hmm. Um, they really wanted to have that experience. I think a lot of people were starting to feel that and do that. Um, but they had actually done it, you know, bought, uh, I, I think the vineyard was maybe it's like seven acres, mm-hmm. possibly seven or eight. Could be bigger, but in my mind, I think it was seven or eight acres. Um, but, um, you know, they were very, very new to it, had bought the vineyard mid-season. They knew Chris. Uh, or maybe Chris had gone down there to introduce himself. I'm not totally sure. Maybe Bill told Chris, you know what I mean? Like how things go. Um, but uh, Chris said, there's this new vineyard. It's really interesting. It's got marine sediment on one side and then there's a opposite hill that's volcanic. So it's sort of this mismatch of 
um, of different terroir that's kind of unique for Yamhill Carlton. Uh, I think I'm going to take half of this block on the volcanic side. Do you want to split it with me? Um, and I sort of did the math and was like, eh, maybe. I mean, and it was all of like two tons or something like that. You know, it felt like a huge uh, investment at the time, though. Um, but Tim and I became friends through that process, and they had not found a buyer for the C and D blocks. Um, and so I said to him, they asked me, are you interested in these? And I said, I, there's no way I can afford it. You know, just, I can't pay for it. I'm not going to tell you I can pay for it. Um, but before you sell it to somebody on the spot market, because you can't find a buyer for it this year, um, you should just give it to me. And here's what we can do with it. And I made them a, a kind of a chart and uh, said, you know, we can make some rosé. I want to try this thing called carbonic and we can make a nouveau. Um, we can make a little bit of standard Pinot Noir and kind of see what different blocks do and how they perform. And uh, we can make some sparkling base mm -hmm. and, and attempt to do a method champenois. Um, and you know, if we do these things and if it all works out, um, you'll have a bunch of wine to show people what the vineyard is capable of. And, um, and ultimately, you will make more money. It's going to take a lot longer for it to come around, but it's better, I think, than putting yourself in a position of, um, you know, selling it on the spot market for two thousand a ton or eighteen hundred a ton. Or, um, you know, of course, this is like this feels like ancient history because in a year like this year and years previous, I mean, but especially this year, there's not a cluster for sale in the valley. Not one single cluster of grapes for sale. And it's been that way since January, um, especially after the frost, but even before then. I mean, fruit now is much, much scarcer than it was in 2015. There were options. Being on the spot market was not something to be ashamed of. It was normal, almost. I mean, that's how I got some extra fruit in 2014. That's how I grew then, too. Some, a grower of Chris's, Ken Kinsilla, who now has sold his vineyard and retired, but he had like a couple of extra tons. And he's like, well, I'm going to be delivering this. You know, do you want some of this? And I make a deal. I mean, it was very like, you know, normalized, I think, back then. But in today's environment, I think more and more people are in on it. It's become much more competitive. Um, that just would not happen. But, you know, I got lucky. Uh, and whatever I said to Tim worked. Um, and the honest truth of it was, is that I, you know, you know I was like semi-transparent about the fact that I didn't know how to make carbonic wine. 
you know, that a lot of it was an experiment, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. that I had made rosé with Chris a couple of years ago. You know, like, it was sort of like, I was just learning. I mean, basically, I took this massive risk, and they took a massive risk on me, and we all just kind of held our breath, and we made these wines. Um, and this was, you know, essentially my third full harvest total. And I processed, I think, 32 tons by myself. Um, no help at all. Um, and um, the 75 cases of Nouveau Carbonic that we made was the basis for the Mirani Carbonic Pinot Noir. We called it Nouveau, or I called it Nouveau at the time, um, put it into clear bottles, did the Division Wines Beaujolais Nouveau party. You know, they were throwing a party, a Nouveau party. They had been doing a Gamay. Um, and um, one of the things that came out of it was that I didn't have any labels and couldn't afford labels. You know, I'd, I had just enough money to buy glass. And maybe not even that. I think maybe I had gone out and sampled the wine to a few accounts in these little jars, you know, like little glass beakers, and said, this is Nouveau. Do you want to buy some? If so, I'm going to drop it off on Thursday. And because Oregon COD, I could say to the glass manufacturer, send me 75 cases of glass on Wednesday evening. And they'll, and I had 48 hours to bottle it and sell it and put the money in the account to cover the check. You know, it was scrappy like that for a long time. Like, just, you know, um, skin to the teeth kind of stuff. And so I didn't, I couldn't afford labels. I could barely afford glass. And um, I took uh, some Uline printer paper. You know, you could get these printers, uh, printer paper in like these hot neon colors. And I think the orange is probably really for like biohazard stickers on like the side of, um, you know, like medical equipment. Um, but I took the clear bottle with the wine and this orange and kind of looked them together with, you know, a few different colors. I was like, the orange actually looks pretty good with, uh, with this kind of lighter color red wine. Um, and quickly made a label maybe in four hours and just printed them off my home printer. And that was, that is the Marini label. It's never changed. Um, I sent a bottle to a distributor in New York, uh, maybe a month later. And I said, this was Nouveau, but they're in China. If you like it, I can relabel it as just carbonic Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, I, I sort of threw it in on like on a whim because I'd made these serious Pinot Noirs, you know, with these gorgeous labels that were um, meant to be. Um, I mean, I, you know, I was spending like 
a dollar aside on them. You know, it was like I was losing money selling the wine. I had spent so much on the labels. It was crazy. I had no idea, you know. Um, just trying to uh, make a dent, you know, make a mark and use that sort of that training that I had come across in advertising to to find a place to exist, you know, within the community. Um, but I had come up drinking a lot of very um, sort of serious uh, traditional wine, I guess, you know. Um, the Oregon wines that I had had at Terroir, the wines that I was drinking at Paul's Place, these were not natural wines. These were just like, I mean, some of them were natively fermented, you know, but there wasn't, like, that was not on my radar until maybe 2015, or right before then, 2014. I had just started to, like, taste things like Vino Diana and Frank Cornelison and some of these, you know, it was really, it started with the original Marini concept was based somewhere between, like, Beaujolais Nouveau, but was really more about these wines that I was tasting from Etna mm -hmm. that were these really light macerations of Morello Muscalese. Um, and a lot of them were in clear bottles. It wasn't happening as much in the States back then. It's kind of ubiquitous now. But um, back then it was putting red wine into a clear bottle, I think was still somehow uh, a little bit of a whoa moment, you know. Um, you would see it, I mean, just a, by comparison today, it's, you know, 10% back then to what it is today. And um, Sorry, I'm kind of losing track of my, my own story. Um, but the, the people I'd sent the serious wines to, and I was like, these are the wines. And they were like, yeah, they're good, but do you have any more of this? And it was the, the Carbo wine. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, can you help me sell through the 13 and 14 of the more traditional open top style wines? They're like, yeah. Uh, just send us the rest of the other. And so I printed labels, uh, real labels, and um, you know, sent them off to New York. And um, a friend of mine named Bryn Hagman put the wine on the list at the Dutch in Manhattan by the glass. And that, it was pretty much like that was the beginning of that wine really mm -hmm. And that label starting to become something. Um, at that point, I decided to label everything that was coming out in the spring and the fall under the Marini because I realized that the congregation and pilgrimage labels, which are much more serious, I'll give you all a bottle of these early ones later so you can see the difference. Um, you know, I realized that as much as I loved that label and wanted it to succeed, that I had kind of stumbled into something that really connected with people. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think that you just have to accept that great things can happen quickly 
and things that you spend time tinkering on and just slaving over can, you know, end up feeling like they don't connect in the same way, and that's okay. You just have to sort of step out of your own pride and, you know, feel the, the same sort of excitement that it's, um, that it's created in, in the people that are drinking the wine. Um, because honestly, it took me a little bit to kind of wrap my head around the idea that this little label that I had made in four hours had really connected with people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I just thought, oh, it's like the typefaces from the other bottle. And, um, you know, at the time, Drake had come out with Hotline Bling. You remember that video? It was like him dancing behind these big blocks of color. It was like all it was, like hot colors, you know, with him dancing. And I was like, it's kind of like Drake, you know, and that was like how I originally made that label or why I thought it was cool, you know. Um, I was like, there's something here culturally. Um, And thankfully, I think to this day, the labels still feel relevant. Um, You know, and and we've obviously expanded the lineup quite a bit. Um, The the rest of the wine from 2015 got labeled as the Marini, the fall wines, instead of being labeled Congregation or Pilgrimage, which was the blend or single vineyard wines, became Marini Super Deluxe. Um, because I figured that if somebody could call their wine like Vintner's Reserve, that I could call mine Super Deluxe. You know, it's all the same, right? It's just like, let's be honest about it. <laughs> um, and, and that was kind of the beginning of the rest of it, really. At that point, I had left those labels behind. Um, was fully focusing on the Marini in many ways and making very tiny amounts of things that I thought were something else. Mm-hmm. Um, in 16, um, I started taking those concepts and stretching them, but like in tiny amounts, you know, like maybe a hundred cases of a carbonic that was 40 days instead of seven, you know, and then with some like foot treading at the end and, you know, just trying to experiment with different techniques. Um, And at that point I'd also stopped putting sulfur in the wines um, at the crush pad. And I can't remember if, I think in 15, I mean the the original Marini carbonic Pinot Noir was completely sans souf. And that was the first experiment with it. And I think, um, if I remember correctly, the, the super deluxe wines, I sulfured at Mallow, after Mallow, but did not sulfur them at bottling. And it was like the, you know, this transition of like trying to like see how far out I could take things, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. find the edges of it. Um, and I did that in 16 too with the original Reggie wine, which is now the sort of top tier Pinot, I guess, you know, it's like the one that gets the longest maceration and um, these days it actually might get 10 or 20% new oak in the blend or something like that. Just ways of cinching it up where it can, if you wanted to cellar it last, 
but mostly it's about building tension. Um, the uh, Marity wines were made in 16. I added carbonic Pinot Gris in in 16. Um, and that was, I think the, I mean, that was the moment where the lineup really solidified, you know, because the, in 15, it was carbonic Pinot Noir, uh, direct press Pinot Gris, which at the time I was calling old vine Pinot Gris, because I thought the, the vineyard where I was getting the vines was like 25 years old and the wine was a little bit weird. And so I was like, well, if I call it old vine, maybe people will think it's just like something with the vines. You know, <laughs> now the wine has gotten a lot better and I, it's called direct press Pinot Gris Sir Lee because now we ferment everything on gross leaves. There's no settling of any kind in the cellar. Um, but um, Rosé, direct press Pinot Gris, the original Carbonic, those three were the spring releases. And then there was uh, Roots, uh, Chris had sold me a ton. So I did a single vineyard Roots, a single vineyard of another vineyard that we work with up in North Plains, and, um, and then a blend, a Super Deluxe. Uh, and, um, and that was, kind of, we haven't done single vineyards again since that year. You know, after that year, um, everything went carbonic. There were no more open top fermentations. In 15, those, like the Chris's wine, the other wine, uh, the, the single vineyard from North Plains, and the, the original Super Deluxe were open top Pinots. They were really no different than the wines that I had made in 14, except they had these hollow foil labels on them now, and they looked like Marity wines, right? But that, those wines sold out immediately, even though essentially the juice was the same as the 14s that had trouble moving in market. Um, and it just goes to show the power of a brand. You know, same juice, different vibe, but you know, I I didn't want to feel like, oh, it's just a cool label and that's all. Like, where where's the actual work headed? You know, and so that's when I started stretching the carbonics, and so it was more like there was maybe 200 cases of carbonic Pinot Noir in 16, and then 100 cases of Reggie which was the extended maceration carbonic. There was some Chardonnay. Um, there was, I did one that ended up being called Late Bloomer. That was a six month carbonic maceration. You know, Joe Swick was also in the space and he was experimenting with extended macerations as well. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of those concepts like that, those, those really extended macerations have faded for us um, and now you know three weeks is more normalized for like a longer maceration here um, but uh, you know at the time 16 was experimental but also small enough to where it could I could still manage it on my own and the work was was really good um, in 17 I moved spaces I moved out of Medici and um, 
you know, there was a, a lot of people there. I mean, at that point, it was myself, Tim Malone, Joe Swick, Holden, Sheba Wishern, Cal Erath was making a ton in there. I mean, it felt like, I mean, there was like eight people in there, you know, and eight people, one forklift, you know, one half ton press. Um, you know, that poor press, I mean, we ran that thing 24 hours a day and just had like, we all had air mattresses and sleeping bags in the attic, you know, and just like, it was Lord of the Flies time <laughs> over there in 2016. Um, and we were a lot younger and could handle it, you know, I think, mostly handle it. Um, and um, I decided that I wanted to move to Portland. I had an opportunity to go work in a facility, uh, like a new urban facility there uh, that was close to my house at the time. And I thought, oh, this is, this is a good thing. And I ended up absolutely hating it and didn't, didn't have a great experience making wine in the city. Did it for one year, uh, made a bunch of wine that I think at that point I was fully committed to the natural thing and had been for a long time, but really like skirting the edges, you know what I mean? Like where 15 was like, okay, we're gonna try this out. We're gonna dip a toe in. Um, and 16, the wines were, I would say actually the 16 wines are closer to the wines now than in 17. You know, in 17, um, I was drinking so much sort of avant-garde wine at the time that I like wanted the wines to have VA. I wanted, you know, I mean, I was like, let's see how far we can stretch this. And, you know, in some ways, I think maybe we were overloaded, but also I had become fine with things that I wouldn't be fine with now. Mm -hmm. You know, but that was just kind of part of the journey, right? Like finding the edge of something and then taking it back. Like really traditional, really avant-garde, uh, you know, where's the, where do we sit and that can feel authentic, you know, because I don't think that we felt authentic in the very, very traditional space. Um, I think that that is a really hard space to be in since, I mean, who knows? I mean, I think since I've been up here, you know, uh, the only people, like new brand that I've seen that I think, oh wow, they were actually able to do that well has been Hazelfern. Um, when, you know, Brian and Laura came in in, I mean, I think that they started in 14 or 15, 15? Mm -hmm. yeah. Somewhere in there, that's what I mean, because their place is literally down the road from Medici. It's like at the bottom of the hill. So that's when I met Brian, and um, this is just a tangent to say that like, you know, that's one brand that I can think of out of probably hundreds that have started that have really been able to be a part of that conversation, this more traditional conversation. But I think it's authentic to them, it's who they are. You know, they didn't come in and, and say, oh, we want to, uh, we're gonna plant this vineyard and we're gonna be natty. 
you know. Um, and, um, you know, I, I had to realize that um, I wasn't that, but I also wasn't necessarily like the bleeding, bleeding edge of, you know, really pushing uh, what some people would maybe even consider wine, I suppose. You know, I think the wines were successful, but they weren't necessarily ours that year in 17. Um, but what's interesting is that the Carbonic Pinot Noir in 17 was Bon Appetit's wine of the year. So the Marini wines were still, I think, the Marini wines. It's just that the St. Reginald wines had gotten really out there. Um, you know, uh, sort of open top macerations of skin contact stuff with that had like significant volatility and and uh, and I was into it because I was drinking a lot of Radicon and thought, oh, this is like these things from Fruili that you know uh, that I think are cool right now and you know you're really getting there and but I think it's important you know it's sort of like playing in a band and you know you experiment with a bunch of different styles and sounds and eventually with any kind of luck you find yourself in a place of authenticity that's truly yours and I think in 18 we found that that you know somewhere between the, 15, the 16 vintage and the 17 vintage lied the truth of the thing for us. Um, and um, I had my friend uh, Tyler Magyar from Monument um, help me in 17 and 18. In 17, he asked if he could come around and like just help a little bit in the cellar. Uh, and I always joke that it's like that scene in High Fidelity where Cusack says about Jack Black and the other character. Um, I feel bad for that guy because it's always probably Jack Black and that other the guy. guy. Um, but um, where Cusack says, you know, I hired these guys for two days a week and they just started showing up every day and that was five years ago. That was kind of how it was with Tyler. I was like, yeah, you should like come by. like and help out and like he literally was with me 18 hours a day for the next three months you know and um, just a champion about the whole thing too and um, really helped me get through the 17 vintage and then we just as like a friend um, you know and I was like buying him hamburgers from the Acropolis um, because that was the, the, the nearest food to this urban space just to be clear, um, <laughs> drive-through window. You, they have a walk-up window, you know. So you were just like walking up at like 1:30 in the morning and buying a bunch of hamburgers and like keeping going until 4 a.m. You know. Um, but he kept with me in 18 and started Monument in 18. So at that point, I had come full circle where I had actually done the Chris thing and brought somebody in on a ton. Um, you know, and I think I'll feel really old when he does that. <laughs> um, but um, 18 was a really good vintage. We went over to Methvin, um, 
because of the bone app thing and some other interest. Uh, well, I'd taken a business partner in 18, a friend of mine named Adam Shearer. And he um, has a digital ad agency. And um, we had a mutual friend in Portland, and he gave me some. Um, we were, he gave me a website for free, like for a couple of cases. You know, he was just like, have you ever tried to sell the wines online? And I was like, not really, because I, I just don't have time to deal with it and like the heat and the cold. And it's, you know, it's more complicated than just selling it online. You know, it's a, it's a very fragile commodity product and especially these wines that, you know, basically have no sulfur in them. And, um, they don't travel particularly well. Um, but he talked me into like, you know, let me, well, let me make, make you a site and we'll just turn it on, you know, in, in a window and we'll see if we can, what we can do. Um, and it, it did really well and I gave him some wine and uh, then he gave most of that wine away to clients. And one of his clients called and was like, I just, this is, I really like this. It was Carbonic Pinot Gris, maybe it was from 17. And um, that conversation uh, convinced Adam to um, invest in the company and build a more proper website. And we scaled from like 1,700 cases up to 3,200 and went over to Methvin. Um, we did that before Bon Appetit, like that came out in December of 18, mm -hmm. you know, it was like their year end issue mm -hmm. of a wine that they had drank maybe in February or March of the previous year, you know, this sort of rolling thing where in this industry, one year can feel like talking about three or four sometimes, you know, um, but, uh, it was just, I mean, almost dumb luck. You know, I, we were ready, uh, but we didn't know that it was coming. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and the wines that were made at Methvin that year, I had Tyler with me. We were actually, you know, actually on payroll now. Um, the wines that were made there uh, that year were really good. And, and I think were better than the 17s in a lot of ways, uh, in most ways, um, which was good because all of a sudden there was a light on the winery in a different way mm -hmm. than there was before. Like on a national stage, people were paying attention. Um, and um, not too long after that, we kind of solidified all of our distributors where we were with Jenny and Francois on the East Coast, and we've been with Amy Atwood on the West Coast for a very long time, and the sort of, the people in the middle who are all wonderful have been, they're basically like some iteration of that, you know, where they're the best in class of mm -hmm. the natural distributorships. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and we were able to just really disseminate the wines uh, properly. In 18, we made the wines at Methvin. Um, we stayed there for a year. 
Uh, we went to Quello in 19. We're at Quello for a year. And um, then in 20, we rented this space. Um, and uh, obviously 20 was 20. You know, it's a hard year to have your first year in a space. Um, so in my mind, in a lot of ways, 21, this past vintage was the first real vintage we've had in this space. Not that, I mean, 20 was certainly real, but, you know, I think that we got incredibly lucky by having most of our vineyards be in North Plains, um, that we are, since 19 especially, dogmatically early pickers. I mean, the Pinot Noirs haven't even broke. I mean, in 21, they finally got above 12%. But, you know, I mean, the Pinot Noir that we released in 2019 was, I think, 11.5. And, and it was delicious. You know, we've, we've just started to figure out things. And we have a vineyard consultant now and just sort of like we've converted 10 vineyards to organic at this point. Um, you know, and it just, it really did just kind of snowball um, in a way that's hard for me to grasp most days, you know. I mean, you're just kind of putting one foot in front of the other. Um, you know, it's a, it's a difficult thing to kind of almost just sit, you know, in this kind of circumstance and talk about, like, how it happened, I, I don't really know, other than the fact that I just kept doing it. You know, an opportunity kept happening. Um, you know, it's never been, uh, I mean, there's no family history, there's no family money. There, you know, it was like literally my severance pay from 2013 and a maxed out credit card to buy some labels. Um, and it's just been like hand to mouth kind of ever since. I didn't have a proper salary until 2020. Um, and even at that, it's, you know, nobody's getting rich here um, by any means. My poor partner has never taken a distribution you know what I mean? Like, we're still kind of waiting for our moment. Um, but, uh, but the wines keep getting better and better, you know, and I think 21 really proved that, you know, we're in our own space. I'm not pissing anybody off in their space. Um, <laughs> you know, Custom Crush is hard. Mm -hmm that way. I feel for everybody involved in the situation, um, especially when it's not a facility that's designed for it, when it's essentially like you're renting a bedroom in your house, you know. Mm -hmm. um, it's a tough situation, but it's also a necessity, I think, for innovation in the industry um, because it lends itself to stories like ours happening. Experimentation. Yeah, and the ability to start, mm -hmm. you know, and start small. 
I think where it gets dicey is when you roll into a place with like a ton of huge tanks and you're like, we're here, you know, uh, and we do things really differently and you're probably going to hate us. Um, <laughs> sure. You know, um, but having our own space has just given me a, a the, you know, the moment that I needed to kind of like take a breath and really live with the wines in the process in a different way than I have ever, you know, had before. And I think the 21 show that. Like they're on a, they're of a different class. If there's, you know, if there's anything that I've worried about, it's that some of the wines that are made for the Marini taste too fancy. You know what I mean? Like the, the like now the, the hardest part is like separating the St. Reginald wines from the Marini wines and making sure that there's, you know, delineation there. Um, because in many ways, because of like the ability, you know, we have our, a press that I love and we have, a, you know, the proper equipment and vineyards are super dialed. Um, it, you really do have to pay close attention to what's going where um, within a click or two. You know, there are certain things that could end up in one place or the other in terms of whether or not they go to St. Reginald or the Marini. But, um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a good problem to have, I suppose. You know, as much as I worry about it, I think it's also a good problem to have, to feel like um, if your worst problem is wondering if your wines are swathy enough, you know, then things are probably okay. All right, so I want to back up a little bit. First of all, Laughlin Road is the road we were looking for Thank earlier. Thank you. I was driving me crazy too. So Laughlin Road in Yamhill, where all those wineries are. Uh, before we get back to wine, I do want to back up a little bit. Obviously, uh, music, music part of your life uh, was a big part early. Tell me a little bit about uh, uh, music education for yourself and, and, and how the band started and, and kind of the, the, the through line for, for the music part before you kind of turned into wine. Um, yeah, so my family are from Louisiana. Um, my mom is a classically trained pianist. My dad was a pastor, Southern Baptist preacher, uh, but not in the hellfire brimstone way. In the, he was a moderate by a long shot. You know, unrecognizable compared to today's standards. You know, they'd probably consider him to be Unitarian. But, uh, you know, it was a different vibe back then. Um, but, you know, I, I grew up in, you know, that sort of all over Louisiana. But I think the, the vibe of our household was that sort of Bible Belt gospel uh, household. Mm -hmm. You know, I spent my childhood in Covington, Louisiana, which is right across the poncha train from New Orleans, which is why the labels are called the Marini and St. Reginald Parish. 
Uh, Reginald is my middle name. And I grew up in St. Tammany, and it's a family name. My dad's middle name was Reginald. My grandfather's middle first name was Reginald. You know, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, music was a big part of our, our lives. Um, and I was playing from a very early age. Um, I moved to Texas in college after um, my dad had taken a church there. And um, state tuition was available to go to a place like University of North Texas in Denton. And I could be around a lot of really great players. Um, and uh, I realized pretty quickly that I didn't want to do a jazz degree um, because the, uh, it felt like the probability of ending up being a band director was pretty high. And uh, while I respect it, it wasn't something that I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, and so I got an English degree thinking, well, it's broad and you can do whatever you want. You know, my dad had gotten an English degree and ended up with a doctorate in divinity. You know, so I was like, okay, you could, you know, I don't think you're gonna be a preacher, but you could be a lawyer. You know, or you can, there's options here. So just kind of do something general. Um, and in the middle of it all, I uh, joined a group and, um, you know, that became my life for a really long time and, and playing with a lot of other people as well after that. Um, but, um, you know, I, we just, that was just sort of this, this chunk of time, you know, and um, I think if, if there's any correlation at all, there's something about maybe um, the way that music is mixed and the way that it's that it feels, you know, um, there's a correlation of balance, mm -hmm. you know, um, with the way that a wine tastes uh, and a way that a song is composed. Um, and there's also, I think, the measure of practice. You know that's important, and the the ability to kind of be alone in something uh, quite a bit, uh, at least in the way that I've done it. You know, I know that obviously, if your career path is with a larger winery, you're actually going to see people during the day, and I'm pretty much alone even now. Mm -hmm. um, and. Um, I think that there's something to be said for uh, practice and the ability to work on something silently um, when no one's around, you know? And then there's a limited moments where you'll actually see people's reaction to it. Mm -hmm. So you talked about not really coming from any kind of wine background, uh, I'm curious about your own kind of personal wine education. What, what were you, as you started learning about wine, what were the kind of the big uh, moments for you in terms of learn, uh, being excited about that education? And what kind of prompted you to continue learning about wine, especially before you started making it? Uh, I mean, I think a lot of it was just, you know, that feeling of wanting to get under the hood of something that 
had deeply resonated with me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it was, uh, it felt mysterious and profound and slightly spiritual, I think. And um, it felt like something that I, it, it just kind of kept creeping up, you know, in the back of my mind in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a way of like when you're, um, you know, this is a pretty kind of southern idea, I think, but like when you're called to something, um, you know, it just kept kind of like creeping up and making me think like, what is this? Beyond the fact that you like how it tastes, I mean, why? What, what is this? Um, and I certainly could have never even I mean, in my wildest dreams, I did not imagine that it was going to get this big, you know, or that it could get bigger. And, um, you know, I thought it was big when I was a thousand cases, and now we're ten times that. Um, so it's, it's a, which is still small for Oregon, but for like one dude, it's a lot, you know. Um, but I think that, that you know, that's the driving force, I think, is it's more that there's something intangible there um, that I don't know if I'll ever truly kind of like grasp. And I think that that's the point. Mm-hmm. You know, you're always slightly sort of, you know, it's liminal. Mm-hmm. Out of focus, always a little out of focus. Yeah. You mentioned the, the the kind of coming to terms with the fact that that what you had sort of foreseen and, and crafted and spent all the time on was not the wine that landed, and the wine that was kind of a, a more of an afterthought was the one that landed. I'm I'm curious about that process for you and and how long it took you to kind of lean into the fact that this, this was the direction you were going to go, and if you ever kind of figured out what it was about that first carbonic wine that did strike people so hard. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, it was immediate for me. I, I liked the wine a lot. I didn't think that it was going to resonate in the way that it did. You know, I thought the thing that I was doing was the thing that people wanted, you know. And I thought that I didn't realize that the thing that I was experimenting with was going to be the thing that sort of made our destiny in, in a lot of ways. Um, it certainly wasn't that I disliked it. In many ways, I liked it more uh, and knew that there was something there, but I was not prepared for how disparate those two things would become. Mm-hmm. You also mentioned like pushing the edges. I thought that was a really interesting way you talked about kind of going all the way out to the edge and figuring out where your spot was. So tell me about that process for you and. Uh, obviously, you, you can only do so much in a year to find those kind of boundaries. So, mm-hmm. uh, what was it? What, what, how did you know the sweet spot when you found it? Um, I think it, you know, it settles in you, like I was saying, in, in that sort of way of like mixing a record or uh, finding balance in something, you know, which could also maybe be a, a meditative thing as well. Mm-hmm. 
where it just feels right, for lack of a better term. Nothing feels like it's poking out. Mm -hmm. You know, when there's a, it feels almost like a circle or a bubble. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the concepts to me are kind of abstract, um, but the thing itself is not. You know, it's about finding balance. And everybody's palette is different that way. Um, you know, what I perceive as balanced, a lot of other people might find to be not balanced. Um, you know, that maybe people feel like our wines don't have enough alcohol in them or, you know, that they're not dense enough or, you know, dark enough or something like that. But I think in the scope of what we're doing, they are balanced. You know, like, it's sort of like, uh, like the reason that I know that I wouldn't be a very good Cabernet maker is because I like acid so much. I would constantly be chasing this thing that really shouldn't be there, mm -hmm. you know? Like I have no idea really how to make a high pH wine that I would be satisfied with. You know, and that's a personal preference, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that it probably goes the other way for people that make those kind of wines. You know, I mean, like, they're, all, they're, they're maybe always going to want more depth than a varietal or a region like this can provide mm -hmm. so far. <laughs> um, um, you know, it's a, that's the thing I think is like just finding finding balance in the thing and sort of being okay with it. You know what I mean? Like, find, it's, a, it's a little bit like finding peace in something. Like, you, you know I mean? You just know it when you taste it. Mm -hmm. You know, but I know how to get there now. And, and maybe that's the difference. You could repeat it. Yeah. Uh, so obviously you mentioned that, the, that you, you're, you're kind of building simultaneous brands and, and working very hard to keep them uh, unique to themselves. Tell me about finding an audience, finding, finding, finding your people. Was, uh, was, it, was it tricky as you were scaling were you, or were you, were you finding there were lots of people out there who had appetites for the wines you were making? Yeah. Um... If we've had any problems uh, thus far, it's that we have more demand than we have wine. Um, and we, you know, we've started to find maybe some ceiling uh, in terms of like the vineyards that we're able to find and lease on our own. Mm -hmm. You know, like I said, it's, it used to be easier, you know, to find fruit when you needed it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and uh, I'm not totally sure if it's that the big brands are getting bigger or if there's just like a lot more people making one ton of skin contact Pinot Gris or like, um, you know, what the, what the deal is. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, there's less and less opportunity, I think, to grow 
at our scale. You know, it's easy to maybe get to a thousand cases and it's moderately difficult to get to 10,000. Um, I think without like land acquisition or some sort of partnership, it's basically impossible to get to 30 or 40,000 mm -hmm. cases in the Willamette Valley. You know, it, we're pretty committed to like not sourcing Pinot from not outside the valley. Mm -hmm. um, there's nothing wrong with it. Just, uh, you know, uh, it's just, I mean, I'm pretty committed to not sourcing Pinot outside of Washington County, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's like a little tiny sliver of land that I'm interested in and at this point, you know, and I'm pretty focused in on it. Mm -hmm. So, Maybe it's planting, maybe it's, you know, uh, I'm not totally sure what the key to it is, but, you know, we've, we've been really fortunate to have an audience for the wines, and I think a lot of it boils down to that I found a way to express um, who I was and, and what maybe more something that felt more true and I know I keep going back to this idea of authenticity but um, you know I tell people all the time now if you're going to start a label remember to make wines for the people that you want to hang out with because if you make wines for a bunch of people that you don't want to hang out with one, you're gonna to have to hang out with those people, and that's a drag. Uh, and two, there will be a disconnect. You know what I mean? There's like a, it's, it's just like when you know that something fits, right? Like two things are meant for each other. It just feels more appropriate, you know? It's why it's going to be very, very hard for big houses to get into the natural wine scene and have any sort of, you know, presence in a real way. Mm -hmm. You know, they might be able to sort of make a simulacrum of it for the grocery store, you know, and, and fool people that have never particularly known where it all came from. Mm -hmm. But I think if you're, if you're interested in, in building an authentic story and timeline, then you have to make the lines from a place of, of who you are and where you're at in the moment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think that those first couple of years for me, I was making the wines from where I was but the truth of it was that when I looked at that wine and where it sat on the shelf with other wines, there wasn't a whole lot of reason for somebody to buy my wine as opposed to Sokolblosser or somebody like that, right? Like, you know, I was coming from a place of drinking a lot of the OG bigger houses now, which were smaller at one point, right? But, you know, my story 
didn't align with where those wines ultimately sat on the shelf. You know, and I think I found a place where it did when I started making the Marini wines. And then I was able to go back and find a place where it matched up, you know, uh, in regards to finer wines. You know, I sort of think of the Marini wines as table wines and the St. Reginald wines as dinner wines or, you know, cellar wines. Uh, so you talked a second ago, you mentioned North Plains, you talked about this kind of sliver of land that is exciting to you right now. Tell, tell me about what it is there that's exciting to you and um, what it kind of ex it was expressed from there in your wine. Yeah, I mean, I think at first maybe it was exciting because it just felt different and I couldn't put my finger on why it was different, you know, but it felt a little bit out of the way. It felt a little bit undiscovered, you know, come to find out later that um, through the stories of like people like Jeff Beer have done a great job, I think, of retelling the story of some of the vineyards and people that were working in that area, you know, Forest Grove in particular, right? But um, we're kind of a little bit actually east of there. You know, like most of our sites are existing in the sort of Helvetia area. Um, and we're almost exclusively in that area. Um, it's different than the Forest Hills, or sorry, the Forest Grove stuff. Um, and it's different than, you know, anything in Dundee or Eola Amity or, you know, any of the other sort of primary sections. Um, obviously the soil type is, it's closer to things that are in like Forest Grove where it's less soils um, with, you know, there's some Cornelius subset and we can get into all of that. But I mean, like, I think primarily what it does is it produces something that feels closer to my palate to limestone than anything else that I've encountered around here. And I didn't know that back when I started working with the sites. It was just that, you know, the fruit seemed different mm -hmm. and it was accessible. Um, it's not accessible anymore because we've gone in and got all the vineyards. <laughs> Uh, or as many as we can scoop up. Um, but, um, you know, we, uh, we're really committed to the area, and I think it's one of the few places left maybe where it still feels like dramatically cool climate. I mean, we are barely past flowering in most of those sites. You know, it will be this year, I mean, it will be, Pinot Noir will come in at 19 and a half or 20 bricks probably for red wine. Mm -hmm. The carbonic helps with that, you know? It's like Beaujolais in the 80s. And that's only my understanding of, from what I've read, right? Like when you talk about or read about, you know, Kermit Lynch, 
you know, talking about like um, in his book, I think it's called The Blind Road or some, I forget the exact title of it, but you know, it's basically his sort of journals um, in the 80s. Uh, and he's talking about tasting with these Beaujolais producers and how incredibly lightweight the wines were um, and how low alcohol they were and how refreshing they were. And they just, um, I think that whatever's going on out there is very similar. I think a lot of people would have a hard time making wine, traditional wine um, from this area actually. You know, because it's not going to get ripe. You know, to get it to the most normalized brick potential in the valley, you're going to have to add sugar to it. You know, but if you can find a way, I mean, if our, you know, we have found that carbonic is the way. You know, if I was to distem that, we don't have a distemmer here. If I was to, you know, we make 10,000 cases without a distemmer or a sorting line. Um, there's, we just, we pay the pickers by the hour instead of by the bucket and, you know, pay well and ask for clean picks. So we don't have to, uh, we don't have to put it onto a line, you know, and for the most part it's clean, uh, year over year, you know, environmentally, like that's, you know, that is what it is, right? Like, you know, um, in 19, we were fortunate enough to get most of it off before it turned to absolute mush. You know, I'm wondering if in a year like this, if maybe we're going to experience something similar. Obviously, last year was as close to perfect, I think, as it's going to get for most people. Um, you know, if if you didn't make good wine in 20, no matter 21, no matter where you're at, you know, I'll maybe don't. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Um, because it was just so across the plate, you know, it was a, to me, 21 is like a perfect vintage in terms of like balance of fruit. You know, I'm more scared of vintages like 12, you know, where it's too hot. Like 15. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, vintages where like, ripeness is easily achieved is something that's scarier to me than a vintage where we barely get it ripe. So I'm looking around in here and I see some, some other varietals that you've mentioned. I see some Merlot over there, Oxara, and of course we're sitting here in front of Disco Nap. So tell us about how the portfolio has expanded as you've scaled and specifically we need to, under, we need to know the story behind Disco Nap. Um, this started in 17 um, with a co-ferment of Trousseau Gris and Pinot Gris from two different vineyards. Omero uh, had the Trousseau Gris and then one of our North Plains sites had the Pinot Gris. And um, it was like a tiny, tiny amount of tree. It was like 500 pounds or like 750 I mean, it was like. It was, it was less than a ton when you put it all together, you know. Um, and we just did it in a picking bin. Back then, the way I was doing carbonic, before we got like proper stainless VCs to do them in, 
Um, I would put it into a macro 48. I would gas the, the macro with CO2 and then put the fruit in and then stick the hose down into the fruit and gas the whole thing and then wrap it with pallet wrap. Um, you know, and uh, use a pocket knife and just sort of cut a little slit. You know, and if, you, if it knocked you back, then you knew that you were okay. And if it needed a little more, you could just stick the, stick the hose down in there and gas it a little bit, you know. But that was how we were making the wines back then, like all of them almost. Mm -hmm. um, but this little co-ferment of Trousseau Gris and Pinot Gris was, uh, I think, in the bin for maybe 30 days, um, untouched. And... Um, at the time, Georgian wines had become very popular in the scene. Uh, at least in, in Portland, it felt like that they were everywhere. It was like everybody was talking about Clevery wines and skin contact Georgian wines. And it felt very much kind of like the current trend, I suppose. And um, the thing about those wines was they were all like these extreme macerations. Mm -hmm like 300 days or, you know, 10 years in somebody's floorboard, you know, um, buried underground. And um, by contrast, a 30-day skin contact maceration felt like a disco nap. And so that's why the wine is called that. It's changed. It's now Chardonnay and, and Pinot Gris. And it's made the same year over year. Um, where the Pinot Gris is put into the tank, whole cluster obviously, but then the Chardonnay portion is pressed and then fed into the tank as juice and the two ferment together. It's a Savoir technique. What about other things you've added over the years? Are you, are you always sort of looking for new things to try or are there things you're specifically, you specifically want to try? You know, there's, there's some things, I mean, there's some Ozerwa that we took on that was in a Pinot Gris vineyard that we took, and we're trying to basically take the whole vineyard these days if we can. Mm -hmm. You know, we find a lot of sites that are somewhere between, I mean, they can be tiny, like three acres, up to maybe 14 acres, uh, 17 acres, I think is the biggest one, and um, we'll take the whole thing. Uh, because we can say, we'll take it all, but we want it farmed our way. You know, and that's the trick, you know. Aside from being able to say, you know, now we control the farming and the pick times of the entire site, mm -hmm. you know, and all this other stuff, right? Um, we, uh, it, it just, it makes life so much easier. And it also, um, It'll, bless you. <laughs> it also, uh, it, it just allows for more freedom, but it also allows us to have this conversation with people about converting to organic. Mm -hmm. um, and it's an easier pitch when, when you say, we want you to convert to organic and we'll take the whole site. Mm -hmm. And if you want to farm it, we'll teach you how to do it. And if you don't want to farm it, we'll put a crew in and we'll do it. Mm -hmm. You know, 
And it's just, I think it's mostly about making it really easy for people and taking the fear out of it. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there's a lot of fear around organic farming. Um, and there's, you know, issues with it as well that I think that we are going to have to figure out how to address as a community at some point, right? Like, um, if you have to spray every time there's a rain event, uh, you know, if you're having to spray every 10 days or more, mm -hmm. that's a lot of tractor diesel. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that you have to ask yourself like what you're chasing. You know, like, okay, yeah, I mean, I think it's amazing to not spray glyphosate. You know, I think that we have to. I think it's, I mean, that, that should be just a non-starter for everybody at this point. Um, but I think that the more we can try to figure out how to even be on the tractor less, the more we're actually sort of espousing the principles of why we're doing the thing. It's much easier in small vineyards. You know, it's one of the reasons why I, I, I feel that I'd like to see more small vineyards and more small producers because it just makes, it makes these things possible. Mm -hmm. You know, if you can backpack spray something or just spray it on like a gator, you know, and not have to get a tractor out there, you're just, you're just saving uh, so much fuel, you know, and not putting that much carbon back into the atmosphere, you know, it's, what's the point, right? Like if one thing sort of takes away the other, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, but I will say, I think it's, you know, it's a great thing to watch a vineyard go organic and then you can literally kind of hear the, the life come back into it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so we're, we're definitely on board and want to find ways of making it even more sustainable beyond organic like what's what's next and how do we do it so tell me about the the sort of natural wine scene in Oregon what what as you were sort of coming into it what did it look like and what has changed in the years you've been making wine um you know i mean i'm the scene existed probably long before I was a part of it, but maybe it it felt like, I mean, at the time, it felt very new. Um, my partner at the time and I were buying the wines online and having them shipped up from Los Angeles. You know, that's where mostly you could find those kind of wines. You know, especially like the new California stuff. Mm -hmm. And even things like, like Frank's Wines, Frank Cornelison, and um, you would see like some, you know, but it, it sort of like felt like this, this tidal wave, you know, in, in like 14 and 15, there was barely anything around, you know, it felt like you really kind of had to search it out. Um, and then in 16, 17, all of a sudden it was everywhere. And then even, you know, as the years have gone on, by 2018, all of a sudden there was five wine bars in Portland, you know, all with this natural bend. 
Um, and I think it's great. You know, I, I don't have anything against it. Uh, I mean, better for us, better for everybody, right? Like, um, but, um, but I feel like I'm kind of talking in circles a little bit, but. Just sort of curious how, how you've seen it change and, and maybe maybe what maybe the next part is what comes next for, for natural oh, Well, I mean, I think what I've seen, what, what's changing is just that there's more of it. Mm-hmm. You know, in 2015, 2016, you could count on both hands, uh, maybe even one, you know, it was me and Swick and Brianne Day and Holden and you know what I mean like it just like it, there wasn't it wasn't like as sort of in the public eye I think you know as it as it is now mm-hmm. now there's more more than I even know I see them all the time I'm like oh what's that you know um, and I think that it's I mean I think that's great because hopefully what's happening is that it's a conversation about environmental ethics and not necessarily you know what's going into the wines you know I'm glad to see uh, conversations um, around farming and also around like labor activism and things like this I think are the more important conversations to have as opposed to like, you know, what intellectual products a person's using or what the PPM, I mean, we used to put like the PPM of the sulfur on the back of the bottle and stuff. We were, you know, I was really concerned about it. And we still post the lab results online for anybody that's interested. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as the wines have gotten better and gotten cleaner, in some ways, you have to, you oftentimes have to defend their naturalness, you know, because they don't taste a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and um, I think it's, it's an interesting conversation uh, to have, you know, that it, I think that this idea of like natural wine is funky wine, or this, I mean, that is one component of it. But I actually don't think that it's where it started. I think it's where it's at. You know, when you look back at the people that were starting it, and in my mind, like I'm sort of seeing it from like the Gang of Four in Beaujolais is kind of like a like a epicenter point, at least for our story. I know that a lot of other people would probably say, oh, but in Freely they were doing, you know, something, or Georgia or whatever, right? But if we, even if we just look back into the 80s in Beaujolais as like a starting place, um, those wines are clean. You know, they, oddly in Beaujolais, I don't think the wines are as clean as they have been. But I also think that that's a climate issue. I think as, as it gets hotter there, and it's hot in Beaujolais. I mean, it's not uncommon now to see those producers pushing wines into you know the 14% alcohol category on a pretty regular basis. Um, and obviously, like high alcohol uh, and no additions, 
are going to mean higher pHs, mm -hmm. which means the possibility of you know wines that are less stable. Um, you know, a lot of these guys are using old fudras, like big wooden tanks, that are susceptible to brett, mm -hmm. um, especially with higher pH wines. You know, um, it's. Uh, but I don't fault them for it. I mean, it's a, it's an environmental issue. You know, they're. I think that they're trying to still make something that that moves them. Um, but I, I do see. Oddly, that a lot of the places that were like the sort of um, crown jewel of um, cleanliness, you know, in terms of like, wow, that's a pure wine, mm -hmm. um, that those things are becoming harder to find. But it's not because of, I think, sloppy winemaking. I think it's because of environmental factors that are some times beyond people's control. You brought up earlier uh, 2020. Uh, I'm curious from your kind of perspective and your experience, what were the, the sort of the biggest challenges of the year for you and what did you sort of do to get through? <laughs> Three N95s a day. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, we we're very lucky that we were able to get quite a bit of fruit out of North Plains before it actually started smoking. The problem was is that it was fully smoky here. You know, if we were processing up there, we might have had like a clean vintage actually. You know, but I didn't, I wasn't prepared for it. It was our first year in this space. I had no sort of cooler to put fruit in. So I would have like eight tons just sitting in the parking lot, you know, in, so even if like it had come in clean, it was smoke tainted by the time I processed it, but not as badly as some others, you know, and the fact that we work whole cluster um, and, you know, we did some things on the press that you know, no tumbling, trying to use the pneumatic press as sort of a basket press and adjusting pressures, you know, not pressing as hard. Just, I mean, I think for the most part, everybody was sort of figuring it out on the fly. Yeah. You know, uh, some of the bigger places obviously had the advantage of having consultants that had been through this before, um, either in California or Australia, but um, you know, in the end, we probably had like a twenty percent loss um, that we've tried to rebound into either you know sort of a what the industry would call a dumper label. You know, um, we started this label called It'll Do <laughs> that um, where we can put you know things that don't make the cut or in the smoky year if we don't want to push that into Marini. You know, we, we created sort of a four-tier system during that time period. You know, there were things that were just obviously, like the, even the juice tasted ashy, you know, pre-fermentation. So we knew that that was going to be a non-starter. So, you know, but press it, make the wine. You know, I think 
not making the wines wasn't an option for us, but also making the wines and learning how to deal with it in the future was helpful. Um, but, you know, I divided it into categories of like things that might be St. Reginald, things that might be Marity, things that might be serviceable under something else, and things that were going to go to the, to the distillery. You know, and that's kind of how we broke it down. Mm -hmm. There was one St. Reginald wine, white wine, or direct press wine. Um, and, you know, Marini was down a little bit. And then there was like 6,000 liters of stuff that we bottled under It'll Do. The label is um, all these like drawings, like figure drawings, like kind of like Ikea figure drawings of like how to open a bottle in a pinch if you don't have a bottle opener. <laughs> and the first one is like a putting a screw and using a hammer to pull it out. And the second one will be a boot against the wall and so forth and so on. A handy how-to guide. Yeah. it's <laughs> awesome. So if it happens again where you have something like that, do you feel after all that work that you're in better shape? I mean, I feel like now I know to always have a, a cooler on site, hmm. um, you know, the, and also like a fan inside of that. So we're constantly like blowing the stuff out, you know, exhausting. Um, but you know, I don't, I don't know. You know, the the fires are a tricky thing. I mean, especially I think for. The natural wine movement, it's, it's really tricky, you know, like how do you make a non-invasive wine, uh, you know, if you're trying to make the wines without any sort of enological product, they are probably going to have some sort of smoke taint. You know, um, I don't know. Um, where that where that puts us in the end, you know. I think in some ways there, it's like a more nuanced conversation that maybe that part of the industry isn't ready to have yet. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if if you put all your effort and like all your livelihood into organically farming 150 or 60 tons of fruit. Um, shouldn't you give it the best shot that you can at tasting half decent, mm -hmm. right? And I mean, that's actually a question for me right now even, you know, like how do we deal with that? Because if we, if we treat the wine, then for most of our distributors and most of our clients, the wine isn't sellable anymore by their standard of what they want to consume. But then we're not really in the channels to be able to sell it to grocery necessarily. Um, but the, you know, the fruits were organically farmed, maybe it got filtered, maybe, you know, it got fined with something, you know, like some way of like dealing with it. Um, but I, I think that it's, uh, uh, it's something that we think about a lot. It's something that I think about a lot just philosophically mm -hmm. and what is coming next, you know, and 
at a certain point, I think, if it was just like year over year happening, then I'm not sure that we would actually continue to make the wines. You know, um, it's, it's just not, like when a thing isn't the thing anymore, what's the point of it? You know, um, that would be a really sad thing to have happen. I mean, I would, you know, that's when you really know that like, I mean, if it was happening like year over year over year, you know what I mean? Where it was just like, wow, this is how it is. Like every vintage, you know, I think it really does like upheave the industry into something else entirely, right? Um, and I also think in some ways that it's maybe not the best thing for us to mask the flavor of it, right? Because it, it tricks people into thinking that things are okay. You know what I mean? Like, if we're masking smoke taint in wines, and you know, like literally, we didn't see the sky for three weeks here, um, people are like, oh, it's okay. See, they turned out just fine. Let it burn. You know, if we say, this is how it is, and this is what we are facing, and I know that it's really hard to like, I don't think that, you know, smoke tainted wine is going to be the thing that makes us finally commit to some sort of climate policy. But I do think it's just one more thing that maybe can help push forward that conversation and say like, this is how far gone we are. We can't even make wine anymore. You know, uh, like not in the same way that we have for many, many decades before. With all that said, um, what comes next for you? What comes next for you and what comes next for the, for the brands here? Oh, I don't know. Constellation, if you're listening. <laughs> Just a dump truck full of money. <laughs> Yeah, uh, no, I mean, I think for now, it's just like about continuing to get better and cross our fingers and hope for more solid vintages without, you know, without forest fires for now. I think that we're in the clear for this year. I mean, I'm crossing my fingers that we're in the clear. It was such a rainy, you know, year that I'm hoping we'll be okay. Um, but, you know, for now, barring environmental catastrophe, I think that, the, that all we can continue to do is try to make better and better wines each year. You know, um, oftentimes, I, when we pick or when we're processing, I'm already thinking about how to make it better a year from that point. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's a, that's a wild thing to think about, but that's kind of the truth, you know, is that you have to be in the moment with it, but you also have to be kind of filing things back because that's your, that's also your educational moment. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. you have to be in the flow of what's actually happening while you're making the wines. And you also have to be 
aware of what you would change and sort of internalize that um, for a full year from then. You know, write it down, whatever you need to do to remember it. You know, try to take notes as much as you can. It's so hard, you know, to try to like do anything beyond kind of put one foot in front of the other during harvest. But um, I think uh, these these moments of um, living in kind of two spaces, you know, that's one thing I really like about wine. I think is um, when it's really good, it's it's sort of omnipresent. You know, it's both uh, past and present and future. You know, it's something that you're, and in multiple ways, you know, it's not just linear, right? Like you're also talking about, um, you're making something that used to be something that's going to be something else. And you're thinking about something that hasn't even grown yet, that's going to be something else. And how that, you know, there's, it's a, you know, it's a really uh, fascinating web and I think way of looking at the passage of time. Mm -hmm. That's an excellent way to finish this up. All the questions that I have for you, uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have, anything we didn't cover that you'd like to cover? No, I don't think so. I felt like I, I feel like I've talked in circles. So uh, no, you. Hopefully, I've made some sort of sense out of uh, all of this. Absolutely, uh, a, 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 a very interesting and unique perspective, and we very much enjoyed you sharing it. So thank you so much for your time, for sharing your space with us, and your thoughts. And go ahead and let you off the hook. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.